0: Turn to your Bibles in the book of Exodus, chapter 32. If you're new to your Bible, Exodus is toward the front of your Bible after the book of Genesis, and we're going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage out of Exodus 32. So when you find Exodus, chapter 32, stand up with me, if you will, and let's honor the reading of God's Word. Praise the Lord. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, "'Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him.' Aaron answered them, "'Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me.' So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron." He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there would be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt... Hmm. Notice God's language there. Now he calls them your people, not my people. (laughs) 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 Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol... Cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But... Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise the Lord. Well, I want us to understand some key concepts about this text, but... Uh, Before I get to that, let's review where we've been so far in this series. Because I don't want us to lose sight of all that God has taught us in these last couple of months as we have gone through this series preparing for Christ's return. So I want us to be reminded this morning of the seven signs that I've been going through. We've done six of the seven. I want us to be reminded of the seven signs of the prepared and the unprepared for Christ's return. Remember, the uh, master text for this series has been Matthew 25 and the parable of the ten virgins. So let's review signs of the the prepared and the unprepared for the master's return that we've studied so far. So one sign of the prepared is that uh, the prepared are working to advance God's kingdom and are not wrapped up in just their own little world. Whereas the unprepared, quite the opposite. Life is totally given over to one's own interests and selfish pursuits. The prepared, their affections, are set on heaven. Whereas the unprepared, their affections are set on worldly things. The prepared are committed to public worship, what you're doing right now. That's a high, high priority and commitment in those who are prepared, but not so much for the unprepared. Uh, There's a very low priority on church attendance. The prepared are lovers of the Word of God. They love the Word of God. They consume it. But the unprepared, little or no time given to the Bible. The prepared are seeking to constantly express the love and grace of God, whereas the unprepared are more concerned about justice and their own personal rights, not as concerned about other people. We looked at this one last week, the prepared are concerned about the lost and are seeking ways to reach them. They're actively involved in seeking ways to reach the lost. Whereas the unprepared, not much attention given to reaching the lost at all. So those are six of the seven, and we'll look at the seventh one today. So this particular insight will, uh, or this particular teaching rather, We'll focus on the seventh and final sign of the prepared for Christ's return. And that last sign of the prepared and unprepared is a priority on prayer. High or low, depending on whether you're prepared or unprepared. A priority on prayer. Now listen, I'm not just talking about this kind of praying. Praying at your meals. Now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayers. Not talking about throwing up a few Hail Marys. Or just uh, you know a few God I need this or that kind of prayers once in a while. I'm talking about passionate prayer. I'm talking about involved prayer. I'm talking about prayer that changes things. Now I've quoted the Prince of Preachers, as he was called in his day, Charles Spurgeon, a few times in this series, and I want to quote him again where this topic on prayer is concerned. Look at what he says: Prayerless souls are Christless souls. Christless souls are graceless souls, and graceless souls shall soon be damned souls. See your peril, you that neglect altogether the blessed privilege of prayer. You are in the bonds of iniquity. You are in the gall of bitterness. God deliver you for his namesake. So, yeah, I think that having a prayerless life, as Charles Spurgeon alludes to here, is an indication of someone who is not prepared for Christ's return. Now, what I want to do right now is talk about some key concepts that we can get from our master text, Exodus 32. So, the first um, concept that I want you to get is that God, He's sovereign, so He can do whatever He wants, right? God is all-powerful, all-knowing. He can do whatever He wants. He's the master of the universe. He can do whatever He wants, but... He can be persuaded otherwise. Even if he has his mind set on something, God can be persuaded, as we saw in that master text. And likewise, our prayers can literally influence God. God can be persuaded, and our prayers can influence Him. In other words, God changes His mind. You've heard it said that... uh, it's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. Well, I think there's a one higher than that. It's God's prerogative to change his mind if he wants to. See, God sometimes does change his mind, and we are the ones that can change it if we respectfully approach him boldly in prayer, just like Moses did in that passage that we just looked at. So, You might remember another man in the Bible by the name of Abraham. And Abraham also once changed God's mind uh, like this as well. And God was, uh, in Abraham's day, God was determined to destroy the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their perversion and their evil. And he announced this to Abraham because he was very close to Abraham. Abraham was close to him. So he announced what he was going to do. And Abraham bargained with God regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Because his nephew Lot and Lot's family lived in that region. So he bargained with God. He said to God, surely you won't destroy those cities if you can find maybe 50 righteous people there. Will you destroy it for the sake of 50 righteous people? And God essentially said to him, my paraphrase, okay, I won't destroy it if I can find 50 righteous people there. But Abraham didn't stop there. He continued to bargain with God. And he got God down to 10 people. He said, will you destroy it for the sake of 10 people? And God said to Abraham, okay, Abraham, if I can find just 10 righteous people in that region, I won't destroy those cities. I'll spare them. And if you've read that story, you know where it went from there. God could not find even 10 righteous people in those twin cities. So he wiped them off the face of the earth. For their perversions. By the way, someone once said uh, that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, folks, listen, I have a di- little bit of a different view on that. Um, there's way more than 10 people in America who are righteous and who are praying for this nation. There's more than 10 people in this room who are righteous and who are praying for this nation. Uh, I, I do want to say this, however, in response to that. Um, you know, Jesus also went on to say when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So the faith part's very important. See, what this nation needs is praying people, ladies and gentlemen. And not just praying people, but people who are praying in Faith, Wouldn't you agree? I'll get to that more in a moment. But first I want to ask the question, well, why is a prayerless life a sign of someone who is unprepared for Christ's return? Well, because a prayerless person is disconnected from the, the Spirit of God in a very fundamental way. You see, it's like a married couple who hardly ever spends time together anymore or who hardly ever speaks to one another anymore and then they end up divorced. Well, the divorce may surprise some people who thought that maybe this was the ideal couple, but when a couple stops communicating, the emotional ties have already been severed, and if they don't get that corrected before too long, they'll make it official with divorce papers, okay? You and I, folks, need to be connected to God on an emotional and spiritual level because God wants to have relationship with each and every one of you. And remember what the bridegroom said to the five foolish virgins in Matthew 25. Do you remember what he said when he returned to the five foolish virgins? He said, I never knew you. I never knew you. In other words, he was saying... I invited you to be a part of my wedding party, but you took my invitation lightly. I wanna say that again. The bridegroom said to the five foolish, in, in essence, I invited you to be a part of my wedding party, but you took my invitation lightly. You never sought me. You never sought me. You never prepared yourself for my return. And now, therefore, because of how you kept yourself from close relationship with me, you can just go ahead and have it that way forever. A little bit heavy, isn't it? People of God, hear the cry of the Spirit today. Hear Him beckoning you to stay connected to the vine, your very source of life. See, passionate prayer is the foundation upon which vibrant prayer is built. See, the problem with most people, ladies and gentlemen, is that they dabble in prayer. And when that doesn't work, they give up. They dabble in prayer, and when that doesn't work, they give up. But dabbling in prayer is not what we're talking about here. I want to refamiliarize you with a, a verse from James chapter 5, verse 16... I'm going to quote it out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible because I believe that this particular version really got this verse right compared to some of the other versions. Um, And you might remember, if you have memorized this verse in a different uh, different version, some of the other versions may say that the earnest prayer of a righteous man has a power and is effective, something like that. But this version says a little bit differently. I want to read this to you. The urgent request of a righteous person, is very powerful in its effect. Now, I want to break down a, a couple of uh, those words, actually one word there. The word deasis is the ancient Greek word that was, um, that was translated into English in various versions. Uh, the earnest prayer, in this case, the urgent request. And I think urgent request is really the correct translation here if you look at what deasis means. So let's look at this. It means a need, an entreaty, a heartfelt petition, arising out of deep personal need, sense of lack or want, which likewise implies a felt need that is personal and urgent. That is personal and urgent. So it's that kind of prayer that has great power and wonderful results. The the urgent request, the earnest prayer of the righteous what we're talking about here is not praying just for the sake of praying, just so you say that you can just so that you can say that you prayed. That's not what we're saying here. See, that's that's what that is. That's legalism. Just praying so that you say that you can pray. Uh, just putting in your time, checking a box, checking a time card, just so you can say, yeah, I put in my time praying today. That's legalism. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, is fervent prayer, the kind of prayer that, listen, that leans on your relationship status with God like Abraham and Moses did, that leans upon your relationship status with God, just like how those men of God did. You see, Abraham's entire approach to God when he was, when he was entreating him on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, his his entire approach was one of faith, you see, because Abraham was secure in his relationship with God, and he knew that God listened to him. And that's how we need to pray. Boldly, confidently, fervently, respectfully, of course, but leaning upon that relationship status. Because actually we live in a new and better covenant than Moses and Abraham did. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to give you five principles of fervent prayer today. And the first one is relationship. And I'm going to read to you out of Luke chapter 11, a parable of Jesus, starting in verse 5 through 13. And you're probably, many of you, very familiar with this, but let's read this together. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you goes to his friend at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine has come to me on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And suppose the one inside answers, Do not bother me. My door is already shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up to provide for him because of his friendship, yet because of the man's persistence... He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Persistent prayer. Let's continue. So I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Asks like this is the implication. That pers- persevering kind of prayer. For everyone who asks like this, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. What father among you... See, he's, he's talking about relationship now. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the first principle of passionate and effective prayer is relationship. See, Relationship leads to confidence, doesn't it? And confidence leads to faith, and faith leads to boldness in prayer. Going back again to our master text, remember that this is the way that Moses prayed. Uh, Moses petitioned God to spare the Israelites when they made that cursed golden calf and bowed down and worshipped it. So God had made up his mind in that situation, if you remember, to destroy them. He'd had it. So you remember what God said then before he was going to do what he was going to do. He said to Moses, I think this is really interesting, now leave me alone, Moses, so that I can wipe these people out. Why did he say that? Well, I believe it's because God knew the character of Moses. He knew that Moses was going to appeal to God on their behalf, and God had already made up his mind he was going to wipe them out. And he knew that Moses was going to appeal. And so he said, now, Moses, leave me alone so that I may destroy them. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and then Moses did appeal to God on behalf of the Israelites And, of course, we know that Moses got God to change his mind. Even when God was determined to do something, and he announced, here's what I'm going to do. Moses got God to change his mind. And this is the kind of prayer that is bold enough, by the way, to get in God's face. And I hope you know what I mean by that, and not in a disrespectful way, but in a way that just won't be denied. You you must have an answer from God. In those situations where you just must have an answer from God, and you're not going to let up until you do. That's the kind of praying that makes hell tremble. And on that note, I want to read you what Samuel Chadwick said about prayer He said the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, from prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Yeah. Now I'll add to that quote there that this fervent kind of prayer based upon faith in our relationship status with God like what we've been talking about is the kind of prayer that makes hell tremble. In fact, I heard a former Satanist once say that whenever he and other Satanists would try to put their incantations and then hexes and curses on a city, the thing that thwarted their plans is if they saw a gathering of believers or when they knew that there was a gathering of believers who were praying in unity and praying in faith in that region, they knew that they were not going to succeed in their wicked plans. He said that prayer, united prayer, praying in faith is what thwarted the enemy's plans. So folks, we must pray. We must pray for this church. We must pray for this region And we must pray for this nation. Pray lest we be destroyed. Because the enemy is doing everything he can right now to destroy this nation. And whether you realize it or not, he's doing everything in his power to destroy you and your family and your health and everything associated with you but the mercy of God has been upon you and he's not been able to accomplish it yet. But if we are prayerless, then there's a chink in the armor. If we are prayerless, there's an Achilles heel that he's able to get to. We must be people of fervent prayer. The second principle I want to discuss with you this morning is just simply time. And you've got to devote some time to prayer, folks, if you want it to be effective. And by time, I don't necessarily mean just hours and hours per day. I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but God knows that you have jobs and there's other things that you have to take care of in life. But if listen, if you've got two hours a day for TV and internet, you've got time for some prayer. Okay? And a significant amount of prayer. I'm not talking about the kind of prayer that you know, just, Lord, help help me to have a good day kind of prayer. I'm talking about getting on your face before God and crying out to him. Because this is the kind of prayer, that passionate prayer, that leans on your relationship status with God, that prayer that just won't be denied. That's the kind of prayer that moves God's heart. Praise the Lord. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion. In Matthew 26, it says, Then he, Jesus, came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Boy, I can relate to that, can't you? The Spirit is often willing, but the flesh gets sleepy, the flesh gets impatient, etc., And Jesus was saying to Peter, couldn't you even stay awake for one hour and pray with me? And I think that's what he would say to many of us today. Couldn't you just hang out with me for 20, 30 minutes in the morning? Give me some time before you begin your day. I heard somebody say to me one time, well, I don't know how to fill up 20 or 30 minutes in prayer. I'll get to that. (laughs) I'll get to that. The third principle is perseverance and uh, perseverance of course relates to our last principle where time is concerned because if you're going to pray and not give up you're going to have to pray daily and sometimes do that for a really long time like weeks and sometimes months and sometimes even years depending on what what the situation is until you see that thing come to pass and folks listen I want to admit to you I don't really know why it works this way I'm not sure why God doesn't just wave a magic wand and answer all of our prayers immediately. I don't know. Some of that may have to do with our own level of faith. That certainly is part of the equation, I believe. But I also believe that part of the equation is our level of passion in prayer, or sometimes the lack thereof. You know, some other people who are persevering in prayer may pray for sometimes years until they see their breakthrough. But when they see their breakthrough, they were happy that they spent those years in prayer, even though it took a long time. Once again, we turn to the words of our Lord Jesus on this point as well. This is another parable of the master. He said, then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray at all times and not lose hearts. And this is also in the book of Luke. Just a few chapters over from where we read before in chapter 18. And he says in verse two, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that town who kept appealing to him, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but he later said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice. Then she will stop wearing me out with her perpetual requests. Let's read on. And the Lord said, listen to the words of the unjust judge. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he continue to defer their help? I tell you, he will promptly carry out justice on their behalf. Nevertheless, here we go. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Ah, there's that faith thing popping up again. And again, we'll get to that here in the next few minutes. But our next principle of vibrant and effective prayer is knowledge of God's will. Knowledge of God's will. Um, let me go ahead and read this passage and then I'll, I'll comment on it. So my passage here, the person without the spirit, huh, listen to what this says. Actually, no, I want to comment on this before So. Um, uh, I changed my mind. See, I have the prerogative to change my mind, too. (laughs) Let me say this before I read that passage. Did you know that we can know God's will in certain situations? Did you know that? If not in most situations. See, the Bible says that we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now, this passage I'm about to read, I'm going to read to you that line in context, because in context of where that line is found, it tells us that we can make judgments about all things because we have God's Spirit. We have God's Spirit. So check it out. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person With the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so has to instruct him. But look at verse 16. But we have the mind of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 through 16. You know, a lot of people say... In their prayers, if it be thy will. Have you ever heard anybody pray that way? And maybe you prayed that way before. If it be thy will. And that's based upon Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if, if you read that passage where Jesus was praying, what he was asking the Father is, Father, if there's a plan B to save humanity, I'd like to do plan B. That's what he was asking because he was anticipating now the the torture that he was about to go through, and now the moment was here. And now he was saying to the Father, Father, if, if if there's a plan B, let's do plan B. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, except for that situation and that particular prayer, there's not very many other occasions where thy will be done is actually an appropriate prayer because we need to already know God's will, at least in many situations because the Bible provides that information of God's will in many of your situations. See, when knowledge of God's will is available, folks, then it's never really that appropriate to pray if thy will be done because he has already made his will known. Okay, now, before you accuse me of being a heretic throw things at me. I'm just preaching from the Word. So let's look at our next passage along those lines. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask." of him. That sounds like to me that God has made his will known and it's very good to pray according to his will. So then the question might come up in a person's mind, well um, what do I pray for? Well, here's the answer right here pray God's will. Pray God's will. And that includes several things. So there's, It's really not hard to fill up a pretty good chunk of time praying. So Knowledge of God's will would include several things. Pray for the repentance and salvation of the people in your circle of friends and family. Very appropriate thing to pray for. Pray the same for the community and the nation. Pray for all the saints, for their health, their protection, for their fruitfulness. Pray for yourself, for your, your spiritual growth, for your children. God cares about all of that, folks. So there's no shortage of things to pray about. Jesus even commanded us to pray for our enemies. (laughs) Yeah. Even if you had to do it through gritted teeth. Yeah. You can also pray some version or variation of the Lord's Prayer. I think that's a very appropriate prayer to pray. You should never run out of things to pray about, folks. And as long as you pray God's will, you can more easily pray in faith. And that leads us to our next prayer principle, which is just that, faith. So now, we've taught on faith a lot over the years in this church, and we're going to continue revisiting that from time to time because the Bible says that the just, that's you and me, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. I think that's a pretty important principle then, wouldn't you say? The just shall live by faith. So we're going to revisit that from time to time in this church. So then what is faith? Let's define faith just for a moment here as it pertains to our subject this morning, prayer. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So listen, faith is a conviction. It's a strong belief or an inner knowing about things that can't be perceived with the five physical senses. Did did you get that? It's a conviction, a strong inner belief about things that cannot be perceived with the five physical senses. For instance, I have faith that when I die, I'm going to go straight to heaven. Now, I can't prove that scientifically or mathematically. I just know it's true. I know it like I know my name. Because I have faith in what God has said and my response to what he has said. And see, that kind of faith can't be generated by human will alone, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Human will is involved in that, but moreover, God grants this kind of faith for those who seek him. Now, let's look at another couple of uh, key words in that short verse there, Hebrews 11.1. 1. I want to give you some additional insight on that. So that word substance, as, a, as it appears there in the King James Version, for faith is a substance of things hoped for. Well, the Greek word there is actually the word hypostasis. And hupo or hypo means under. And stasis, that's a compound word. Stasis is histamine. And it means to stand. So then the proper usage of that term as it applies here is standing under a guaranteed agreement, entitling someone to what is guaranteed under that particular agreement. Isn't that good? Now let's look at another word, the word evidence. And that's the Greek word elenkos. And I know it sounds like it's an but it's actually spelled that way and pronounced elenkos, which means a proof or a test. The proper usage here is a proof or a persuasion, an inner conviction focused on God's confirmation. So then, we could literally interpret or translate that verse based upon that information this way, and we would do no damage to the verse if we did this. We could translate it like this. Faith is the guaranteed agreement of things hoped for, the proof of things not yet seen. All right, now how is that kind of faith accomplished that we have the the faith of of something that's guaranteed even though we can't see the reality or the evidence of it in the physical world yet? How do we get to that kind of faith? How is that kind of faith accomplished? Well first of all there's a verse in Romans 10:17 that I think most of you that have been attending here a while are very familiar with we refer to it a lot. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. See what you're doing this morning in listening to the word of God that's building your faith right now. Your faith is being built right now. When you get in the word of God and you read your faith is getting built up. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now by the way, the antithesis of faith, we have to address this, if we're going to have strong faith and results in prayer, the antithesis of faith would be what? Did, did, I, did I hear doubt? That would be the right answer. The antithesis or the opposite of faith is doubt, and that's what we want to avoid if we want results in prayer. So I want to reach you very quickly here, James 1, verses 6 through 7, which says this, but when you ask, You must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. One of the most profound and poignant verses in the Bible follows right here. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Bam! Right between my eyes. I think it's pretty important to do whatever you can to eliminate doubt from the equation because that can undermine your faith. See, we've got to come to a place, folks, of believing God's promises more than we do anything else, more than we do the news reports, more than we do the doctor's reports, more than we do our bank statements, more than we do our own feelings. Yeah. Hallelujah. See, we... we, We can't let those things sway us because if we do, we can derail our faith and that makes our prayers ineffective. I'm just quoting the Word of God to you, right? This is not the Gospel of Andy. I'm just reading the Word of God to you, okay? I didn't make this up, folks. If you've got a problem with this, take it up with God. I didn't make this up. Okay, I didn't write James 1, verses 6 through 7. It's not Annie that said that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That was by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. See, you got saved by faith. And when you got saved, you didn't doubt that, bam, something happened. And right then, God saved you, and your name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Did you know that everything that you do and believe for from God from that point forward is received exactly the same way by faith? That's the way this whole thing works. That's the way this whole thing works. Like I said, doubt makes our prayers ineffective. And the only way to get to the place of eliminating that doubt is to behold God's word more than we do all these other things, the news reports, the doctor's reports, bank statements, and our own feelings. I wanna just stop right there for just a moment and say, folks, listen, if you are led by your feelings all the time, you're gonna think you're saved one day and damned the next. You can't live by your feelings. Your feelings will mislead you over and over and over and over and over and over again. See, we have to behold God's word more than we do these other things. But that's exactly the opposite of what most people, even Christians, do. They behold all of these other external things all day long, every day, and maybe behold God's word just a little bit every so often in small amounts. And then they wonder why their prayer life is so ineffective, so dull, so lifeless, and so without results. I'm going to say it this way. We get what we behold. We get what we behold. We get what we put before us and we, we change our mindset. The, the Bible tells us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you get your mind renewed? You behold the word of God more than you behold all these other things, the news reports and what have you. Man, I'm telling you folks, if you spend your time listening to the news, you'll be as faithless, you won't have enough faith to blow the fuzz off of a peach. (laughs) I'm telling you, you cannot live listening to news reports. So I'm gonna tell this, and I've told you this many times, I'm gonna tell you this again, Smith Wigglesworth, who many of you know, some of you might not know, he was a, um, a minister in England, in the late 1800s and early part of the 1900s. Tremendous man of faith. He had, and this is documented by the way, he had 20 documented resurrections that he performed. Tremendous man of God. (laughs) He was so radical. This is what got him to this place. He was so radical that if somebody came to his door and they had a newspaper tucked under their arm, this was in the 1800s. If they had a newspaper tucked under their arm coming to his door, he said, oh, You can come in. That newspaper got to stay outside. He didn't want to see those headlines, and, and he called them lies. Even back then, yeah. folks, we live in a very similar time. As a matter of fact, it's gotten a lot worse. Yeah. Okay. So again, we get what we behold. Listen, if you've got some issue in your life that you've got to have God move on, why don't you get in his word and find some promises related to that thing and then stand on those promises in prayer. Remind God of his promises. It's okay to do that because God says to do that. Put me in remembrance of my word, he said. Remind God of his word. I don't know why he wants us to do that. It's not for his benefit. It's for ours. He remembers His Word. Sometimes we don't. So he says, put Him in remembrance of His Word. Okay, declare His Word out loud. Recite His Word back to Him. There's power in that. See, when you pray God's Word, you are automatically praying according to His will, and that right there can build your faith muscles in prayer. But there's one more little point that I want to make about prayer before we wrap this up. And that's something that Mother Teresa said. She said, I used to believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us, and we change things. And I think that that's true. I don't know that it's entirely true, because I think there are certain situations that are outside of our control. See, there are situations that we can have some influence on. We just need some guidance from God to do so. So this is what I call putting legs on your prayers. Okay. Sometimes the situation is completely out of our hands and there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. But at other times, God will give you a strategy. And at those times, we have to take His instructions, whatever they are in that situation, get, take those instructions that He gives us and then act, act on those instructions. All right, I'm going to give you a summary of this teaching and then we're going to have a little exercise. So let me give you the summary first. Uh, First, the the points that we've covered today in um, developing a vibrant prayer life and being prepared for Christ's return as one of the five wise virgins is first of all to develop a relationship with God through His Word, through worship, through serving, and of course through prayer. Develop a relationship with God. Secondly, spend time with him. Talk to him often about everything. Have an appointment with God. Yes, I do believe you need to have an appointment with God because Jesus even did that. Before he started anything else, before his day, he got up early, the Bible says, and went to a solitary place and prayed. I think that we need to do the same thing. But we shouldn't just relegate it to a time slot because God wants relationship. And relationship isn't just a time slot. Relationship is communication all day long. Okay? So I have my time slot of prayer, but then I'm praying and talking to God all day long throughout the day beyond my time slot. Does that make sense? Thirdly, persevere in prayer. Don't just try it. Live it. Live a prayer life. Okay? Don't dabble in it, and then when it doesn't... Turn out the way that you think and or in the timing that you think it should happen. Give up on it. You persevere in prayer like we've studied here. Fourthly, have a working knowledge of God's will and then pray according to God's will. Hallelujah. And then fifthly and lastly, all of the above will lead to more faith and more faith leads to better results in prayer. Now, before we do the little exercise, I have a video that I want to show you. You know, um, I am a, a teacher of God's Word. I'm a disseminator of God's Word. I like to break things down like I did this morning, and I realize that sometimes my approach is a little bit academic. I'm not really a preacher in that sense, but I love listening to good preachers. And I'm going to show you a short video right now, a five-minute video of uh, a lady by the name of Priscilla Shire. Some of you know who she is. I want you to listen to what she has to say about this subject of prayer, and then we're going to have a little exercise and close.
1: It was the 1940s or so when there was a professor who was in England, his name was Professor Orr, O-R-R. He taught theology at a university there. He decided to take some of his theology students, this is the 1940s, he decided to take them on an excursion, a field trip, so to speak. And so he gathered up his students and he said, we're gonna go visit some of the historical places here in England that have some sort of theological significance. He took them to many religious sites, some that had been very strategic in the building up of the church and in um, the Christian faith. And one of the places that they visited was the Epworth uh, Rectory, which would have been the home, the living place, the study place of one of the great reformers of the church. His name was John Wesley. John Wesley sort of put in place much of the theology upon which the church that you attend, that I attend, a lot of that foundational theology was crafted by reformers like John Wesley. So John Wesley would study, he would teach, he would preach, he would pray that revival would spread out, not only in England, but he prayed for it here in our country, that would, revival would break out. He and others like him ushered in, in prayer, some of the great revivals that swept through America in the early 1900s were people in mass. We're coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, where the heavens seemed to be open in an unusual way and revival broke out in a way that has made the history books that we still look back on now and recognize the fire of God's spirit that spread during that time period. It's because guys, many of them, like John Wesley, were on their knees praying that God would move. So these theology students went and they visited this rectory, this house where he lived. And they went in the kitchen. Professor Orr showed them all where John Wesley would have uh, eaten his... Uh, lunch and his dinners, where he would have cooked, where he would have lived his life there, took him into the study where John Wesley would have studied. These theology students were enamored because, of course, some of the old books that John Wesley would have studied from, that he had written in, some of those notes they had preserved, they were still there on the desk and on the bookshelves. And so the theology students were feeling the, the spines of those books, just enjoying the richness of this history. And then Professor Orr walked the students up to the second floor where the the most intimate quarters of John Wesley would have been his bedroom, walked in the bedroom and the students began to file around the bed in the tiny space in that bedroom. And as they all filed into the room, one of them noticed as they got around the far side of the bed that there were two um, small patches, well-worn patches in the carpet fibers of the floor. They were right next to each other and they were beside the bed. And he he asked his professor about those patches that were worn right there beside the bed. And Professor Orr explained that it is said that those two patches were the actual places where every single morning, not for a minute or two, but for several hours on end, John Wesley would plant his knees right beside his bed and he had prayed so long and so hard for revival that his knees had actually imprinted themselves onto the floor. That the carpet fibers were, were worn as he prayed for revival. So the students stood in there for a moment and after a few moments they left the room, they went downstairs, they all got on the bus to go to the next location. Professor Orr stood at the front of the bus, counted the students to make sure everybody was there and he realized one was missing. He walked back into the house, went into the kitchen to look for the student, nobody was there, went into the study to look for the student, nobody was there, walked up the stairs into the bedroom and he could just see across the other side of the bed the head and shoulders of a student who had planted his knees down in those well-worn patches on the floor and he could hear the student praying, do it again, Lord. Lord, would you do it again and would you do it again with me? Professor Orr walked around the side of the bed. He put his hand on the the shoulder of the student and he said, it's time to go and rising from his knees, Billy Graham went and joined the rest of the students on the bus that day. And then, God did it again. And I just wonder what would happen if this week there were some people who were brave enough to say, Lord, would you do it again? Would you not allow me to be a Christian in name only? Would you make it so that I'm so uncomfortable with being a nominal Christian who just comes to church, who just reads a verse a day to keep the devil away, who's just a good person but isn't a person who is completely sold out for the cause of Jesus Christ? Lord, would you make it so that I am different and unique and set apart and filled by the Holy Spirit of God?
0: Lord, would you do it again? Folks, America needs God to do it again. And here's the exercise that we're going to do. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're not just going to talk about prayer and just send you on your way and uh, go have lunch and then forget all about what we talked about today. We're going to pray. That God does it again. Because we are where we are as a nation, because the church has fallen asleep in the pews. I'm not going to let us leave here without taking action. Here's what we're, we're going to do. I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to break up into groups right now. Just like a couple of families. If you're here by yourself, join a family. If you're here with your family, invite two or three people into your circle. And whoever felt, feels led in that group to begin praying for this nation. We're not going to not gonna prolong this. Well, maybe we will. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will fall and we'll be here all afternoon, and if that happens, that's okay. <clears throat> but can we take just a few minutes, folks? Can we do that? And just begin to pray for this nation. Pray for this community. Pray for this church. Can we just gather? Just do something as simple as gathering into groups. There may be some noise that goes on. There'll be a lot of commotion maybe as, as voices are lifted up. We don't have to. Pray little whispery prayers. You can raise your voice if you want to. That's okay. And probably very appropriate. Okay? So I'm going to pray just a a brief prayer here real quick. And then I would want you to just break up as you will and find some people in several groups and just begin to bomb hard heaven for this nation and for this community. And we'll adjourn whenever you all feel like you're, you're done. Would that be okay? Father. We pray, Lord, like Billy Graham once prayed. Do it again. Do it again, Lord, and do it through us. Lord, I pray that many people and many churches throughout this nation, oh God, would begin to cry out to you and not be comfortable in their little Sunday morning happy, clappy routines that we do. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And these are desperate times, Lord. And we need you, Lord, to act. Because we believe that this country is not too far gone. Yes, it has drifted so far off course that we wonder how in the world we ever got here. But Lord, we know that you are a merciful God. And so as we break up into our groups right now, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just inspire each person that prays, that you would come, Holy Spirit, and you would be the one praying through each individual. So as we do this now, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, come in a mighty way today as we exercise this privilege of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead, guys.